Yeah, we can record it and then um, they can choose whatever they like. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> Welcome to The Northern Voice. Today's episode is going to be an exploration of gender and theatre. So I have with me Cheryl Martin, who started out as a performance poet. She became a playwright and a radio drama writer. She also works as a director. Cheryl has been performing solo shows since 2015, based on her own experiences as a suicidal depressive with borderline personality disorder. Her solo shows are funny, in which she also dances and sings. Currently, Cheryl is co-artistic director of Common Word, as well as Black Gold Art. Isabel Belchin of Mooncup Theatre is an actor, performer and theatre maker, as well as a facilitator, originally from Rosendale in Lancashire and now based in Liverpool. Isabel co-founded Mooncup Theatre, where um, gender plays a key part of her practice. She has a keen interest in drag performance. She aims to open and shatter the conventions that exist within theatre arts and society. Susie Green Susie first got in touch with mermaids in 1999 when she needed support for herself and her daughter. She then became a trustee and chair and held the position of CEO since January 2016. Over the last four years, she has helped the charity to reach out to thousands of children, young people and their families. As someone has, who has worked in the third sector for 20 years, Susie is committed to ensuring that all children are respected and loved unconditionally. So thank you so much for coming today. Cheryl, can you tell me about how you dealt with the constructions and expectations of your ascribed gender growing up? Well, as a cisgendered female growing up in basically sort of the more southern part of the United States and growing up Black as well, um, a lot of expectations were put on me because um, I went to Catholic school until I was 18. And so the nuns had very definite ideas about how you were supposed to behave and be a good girl. And they mostly involved, you know, being very modest, being very quiet, um, you know, basically not being dominant. They wouldn't say be submissive, but if you had a dominant personality, they definitely were against that. Don't be loud as a, you know, cisgendered female in a black family um, that was really very bougie. So, you know, they had, you guys don't say white Anglo-Saxon Protestant and it's WASP in the States. And that's a whole repressed, you know, repressed emotions, the way you act. Again, you're very proper in public. Oh gosh, you know, I had gloves. I had, I had white gloves my whole time I was growing up till I left home at 18. And I've still got those white gloves and the little black clutch purse that they went into. And when you went, you know, if you were going to anything big, you had your gloves on. Um, and I came out as lesbian when I was much later in life, um, 46. And I think that that was like the final flowering of my rejection of everything that I was brought up to be. 
<laughs> so for me, it was like, you would really need to get out of this expectation of behavior. Thank you so much. So Isabel, what about yourself? Yeah, so um, growing up, I had, uh, my parents were quite um, accepting of me doing a bit of both. You know, I love sports, I love dancing. I was always climbing on things when I was little. So I was quite a, a boisterous little girl, I guess. And I think that sort of carried on through, you know, primary school. And there was a, a time when I just wore boys clothes. I didn't want to be girly. I I wanted to be called a tomboy. And when the boys called me a tomboy and like accepted me and, and let me be in their team, that was something that I, re I really wanted. Um, so I think I sort of, um, didn't want that femininity in a way um, from like the age of like nine to 12. Um, and then I think when I, and I always thought I can do exactly what the boys can do. I was sort of brought up with that sort of mentality from my parents, which is a, a great thing for them to, to be like. But, um, and then going to high school, I think that was when I started to realize the divide and um, feeling the need to conform, um, the difference between how the boys behave, the girls behave and, the body shaming, their attitudes towards women and girls. And I did, I, I sort of conformed a bit. I wore the fake tan, I put the makeup on and I went through different phases through um, with my gender. I was always quite an outspoken student, quite an outspoken person, but I think I also developed a very self-deprecating sort of approach. So if I if I was confident, then I'd, I'd make a joke about it. I, um, I quite doubt myself quite a lot. And that's still something that I'm working on, you know, um, like perfectionist tendencies, you know, I think boys find it quite easy to just go for things and not really think about it. Whereas I think girls, um, think a lot more about, oh, I can't do that. I've got to be absolutely perfect. And I think that's something that was drum drummed into me slightly, but yeah, I think from girls and boys, it was that need to conform and to sort of care about what the boys thought and um, everyone wanted the boys to fancy them and everyone was sort of, you know, um, doing stuff to please them and they never had to um, be responsible for their actions. Um, I remember when I was about 12, like um, my friends at the time, like, oh, you need to shave your legs. Oh my God, you need to shave. And my mum was absolutely fuming because I, I was only small, you know? And then it was all that, you know, preening. I mean, I've not shaved in about a year now because of lockdown and I'm not bothered anymore, you know, we <laughs> reclaim that hair. But um, but I think moving away to Liverpool and going to university um, really opened up my view of the world. And um, yeah, coming out as gay was something that um, really made me challenge myself and question sort of the, the boundaries and, and how everything's done with the with a male in mind and I don't even care about their attention. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me what they think and sort of what even being gay is and how there's many different types of being gay and it's not some sort of stereotype. And um, that freed me, it, it allowed me to sort of do things on my own terms and um, finding a queer community and meeting diverse different people um, who didn't, conform to expectations, who were their authentic selves, who allowed me to express myself and finding that queer community is something that's really helped me with my journey on gender as it is. Yeah. That was lovely. Thank you. <laughs> Thank um, you. So Susie. Um, I suppose growing up, um, I just remember sort of 
growing up with this feeling that I always had to be nice and I, I couldn't argue back and I would always conform and I would be so worried about what other people thought of me. So, you know, I was a, I was very studious. I did what I was told. I, um, I sort of, I did conform and I did push down my personality to, to be that nice girl, as it were, you know, to, to sort of fit in. And it wasn't really until I had my kids really, and with Jackie as um, my oldest, that I started to recognize the fact that actually being nice wasn't getting me anywhere. And actually I was letting down, you know, I was letting down my kid who was really struggling with their gender identity. And really until, until I had Jackie, I never realized that they were trans kids or that was even a thing. And in fact, in terms of transgender people, I had no clue. It never even occurred to me, you know, about the fact that people could be trans. Um, so having my kid and, and having to, to sort of speak and advocate for her against a really a stereotypical um, experience environment where everybody was was saying, you know, what was expected and the fact that she was she didn't conform to any of those expectations caused her a lot of pain and me a lot of pain because I was constantly trying to protect her. But she was, you know, she was very much, you know, from the minute she could express herself. She was very clear about who she was, but was constantly told that that wasn't real, wasn't possible, and and she had to stop. So the shame was extreme. And for me as her parent, I had to stick up for her and advocate for her. And that meant that I had to go against a lot of what was at the time, bearing in mind she's 27 now, you know, the, the expectations of what kids should be and how they should behave and also the expectations of a parent that I should squash that behavior and make it go away. Um, and so I was fighting uh, on all fronts, really, sort of in the middle of trying to protect my child. And it was against the professionals at the time as well, because the understanding of gender identity is, has gone forward so much. But I never, ever thought that I would have to deal with that. And what it also did for me was actually shone a light for me on what I did to fit in and conform and then how hard it was to actually push back against that and go, I'm not doing that anymore. So as well as actually being the advocate for my daughter, what it also did is it shone a light on what I did as a person to, to fit in within society and, and sort of made me look at what I was doing and think, well, actually, why am I doing this? Why am I conforming to an ideal that actually doesn't fit my personality at all? Um, and it, it's, it's really stepping outside your comfort zone to go, actually, no, that's not I'm not, I'm not going to listen to that anymore. I'm not going to conform to that anymore. And also I'm going to defend my kid against you too. It's, um, yeah, I've learned so much, so much just through the experience of having a trans child um, in terms of what, what the environment, what the world is like and what the expectations are, both of myself as, as a cisgender woman, um, but also of my, of my kids, all my kids, because I've got Jackie and uh, she's got three younger brothers, but also how how toxic masculinity and expectations of, of boys and young men actually damage them, you know, really badly in terms of their ability to express themselves and show vulnerability and the things that, that, that are put upon young men as well as, as well as young women about what is expected. And I think it's, I'm, I'm seeing it getting worse, really, I think at the moment, I feel like the, the gender stereotypes are becoming stronger and actually more destructive. Thank you. Um, Susie, you, um, do, am I right in thinking that your journey as a parent to a trans child began with the 
well, obviously it began with your daughter, but also your involvement with mermaids. Can you tell me about how that shaped your thinking? Yeah. I mean, when Jackie first told me that she was really a girl, I remember after she said to ask me about the operation, I just thought, I need some help. I don't know what to do. So I, I did a Ask Jeeves internet search, which is like embarrassing to think about how long ago that was. Um, and um, I just typed in, my son wants to be a girl. And Mermaids was on there and I picked up the phone and I spoke to them and uh, spoke to one of the women who was one of the founder members. So they had just, I think, about seven trustees and they were just, it was completely voluntary based and they were just answering calls during the day. And it was the first person that I spoke to who understood what I was going through as a parent, but could also talk to their daughter who was 17 at the time and and the parallels, not all of them, because obviously everybody's unique, but there were so many things that crossed over in terms of experience. And I think it was just that moment where I suddenly felt less isolated. I felt less alone, knowing that there were other people out in the world who were dealing with the same thing as me was a huge relief, just such a massive relief, as well as through my own personal experience, but then also talking to other parents. The work that I did with Mermaids just got more and more involved and I became a trustee. Um, And throughout all of this period of time, understanding and knowledge of trans people was, was starting to change, bearing in mind the sort of stereotypes that you saw was the way that um, the trans woman on Ace Ventura was treated, which was horrific. The way that, you know, Crocodile Dundee depicted a trans woman, you know, it was just all based on the horrible stereotypes, victimization, um, body parts. And it just took away entirely from people's actual personalities and, and identities and just made them, made a mockery of them, essentially. And I was terrified that that would be what what my daughter would face. And unfortunately, you know, she still did. You know, even with supportive parents and, um, you know, sort of like, you know, somebody who was there sticking up for her and, and trying to protect her from it, the outside environment was still horrific for her. So thank you so much. Um, so Isabel and Cheryl, as artists, can you tell me how your um, your evolving ideas around gender and your identities have been shaped have shaped your work Isabel I've just always thought in performance that gender doesn't really matter we should have the opportunity to be able to play whatever parts we want to play and at at the minute there's still not a lot of good parts for women and I think a lot of the parts that are greater are, are male roles and why shouldn't we play them um you know, men don't just have the autonomy on masculinity. Women can play masculine too. We've been doing a lot of work with um, drag at the minute um, over the last few years. We've um, And we've been running workshops with um, a variety of people, but mainly doing drag kinging with, with women and exploring what all the possibilities that are within you um, and being liberated by being able to like break free from that binary and explore some of the things that maybe you've never explored before, um, all the different parts of you that could exist within you. Um, and it's and I think by doing the drag and by learning more about gender, it's just really opened myself up to all the different possibilities of, of what we can be as people. Um, yeah, so we're, we're all about sort of breaking the taboos and being unapologetic and bold and um, 
being silly as well, you know, we need more silly women in the world, I think. And we're all about just being, everyone calls us Mad Moon Club because, but I take that as a compliment, <laughs> you know, cause a bit of chaos. Sounds amazing. Thank you, Isabel. So Cheryl, all about yourself and your work. Well, um, when I was at Uni in the States, um, I, I was, you know, part of the theatre club and the roles that I was getting offered were all maids and prostitutes because I was black. And so I decided that I didn't want to play that and I'd write something that was, you know, a really good role for a woman. And then I realized that I'm not an actor, I'm a performer. And so I, you know, actually gave it over to actors to do and a director. And that's when I started writing for theater. So like the, the whole reason why I started was because there was such rotten roles that I was being offered. And then as I went through, um, again, I, you know, write things with a female protagonist because there are so few and we don't see ourselves. And, um, and when I became a director, then it was a hunt for writers that would write good roles for women. And so that, that's actually always been my driving force. Um, and when I started performing the solo work, uh, again, that was about who sees a black middle-aged to, you know, much older woman on stage, you know, holding the stage and talking about her life. So, and that, and, you know, trying to put black women's lives at the center has been something that's been really important to me. And um, so for Black Gold Arts, for instance, the festival we do in Manchester, that's always been 95% female um, uh, and largely gay as well. So uh, the Black Gold Arts itself, uh, out of the you know seven, three staff, four board members, there's only one straight person in there. So and and the trans man is one of our is one of our people as well. So it's um, you know that that's really always been at the center. And it doesn't mean that I do, and it's not that, you know, you do, you basically, I, and I never tell people what to write. So it's about letting people write whatever they want, but those people that I'm empowering tend to be black women. And it means that they, you know, you don't, you don't get stereotypical roles and they don't write about what you expect them to write about. Um, one woman that we helped, you know, wrote something about massive black holes and how that, you know, about superposition in the galaxy and superpositions in terms of sex and brought those together. And, um, you know, another was a mathematician. Um, and so higher maths is always part of her shows. And it's, so it's like, we, we write what we want and it's not necessarily what the mainstream expects us to write about. Thank you, Cheryl. Um, there is um, a trend towards a hypersexualized representation of femininity made popular by reality TV and the Kardashians. Yes, I'm sure this is not new to you. So trans women are often blamed for this. I, I mean, to be, I'd say that trans women fall into those stereotypes because actually when they're trying to go through gender identity services, they are told that if they aren't feminine enough, 
then they don't meet the criteria. So there are so many hoops for people to jump through in terms of, you know, I, I have known of kids turn up, you know, trans girls turn up to appointments in jeans and a T-shirt and being told that they're not trying hard enough or that they're not feminine enough. So these are based around stereotypes and ideals. And this is part of the, you know, the work that we're doing to try to change that, to, to constantly challenge that, that actually this is not about how your gender expression works. And everybody has a gender expression in the way they, that they express themselves, um, but that it doesn't, it shouldn't be required to fall within stereotypes to be believed to be listened to, to be respected. And the sort of feminism that excludes trans women, well, it's not feminism. And I think we, you know, we need to be, we need to be putting that to one side. It's not, it, it's, it's critical, it's exclusionary. And the other thing it also does is they spend so much time and energy focusing on this. And what they're doing is they're ignoring the thousands and thousands of women who are assaulted and who are murdered and who are hurt by men. And where's, where's, where's the push for that? You know, that's what people should be focusing on. And thankfully we're seeing some more of that now, but the amount of energy that gender critical um, people put into trying to exclude trans people um, against this tiny minority of people who literally just want to get on and be, um, it, it's, it's really, it's incredibly harmful. It's divisive. And I think like things like Brexit and Trump, have made it all so much better because any kind of prejudice has been given a nod. Um, you know, the the world in and of itself is is saying that othering is okay, and actually it, it's it's reasonable not to trust somebody because they're not like you. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the other thing that this ignores is that, as 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 you said, Isabel, is that trans women in particular are actually the most vulnerable in terms of you know in 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 terms of um, assault and you know being assaulted and transphobic hate you know and I can say you know I can talk to that because that is like you know that's what that's what my daughter's experienced and some of those experiences have been because you know she's she's a woman and she's she's been um treated like so many of us are in in terms of with regards to 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 men um men abusing women so but yeah it's not feminism and of course, during the pandemic, violence against women, domestic violence and femicide has gone way, way up. And I think that bringing more attention to bear on that, which is like the everyday onslaught that all of us go through, that is what we need to be talking about, not who uses the bathroom. Isabel, what about um, your experience of casual violence or misogyny? I Well, it's it's just ingrained in us as women, isn't it, to sort of, it's 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 been normalized and seen as normal and something you're just supposed to put up with, you know, there's being afraid to walk home at night, being afraid. I think it's something that you just have ingrained in you sort of um, thinking up scenarios of um, what if I get attacked, I'll, I'll run to that house. I'll, I'll, you know, being catcalled, having your body seen as a vessel rather than as being a human being. Um, and, um, like I work, I've worked in hospitality as well, and it's 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 a nightmare because you're just trying to you're trying to do your job, and you've got drunk men disrespecting you, seeing you as other, and um you know trying to it's just being seen as a sexual object to thing and being you know touched and and even as a gay woman um your my sexuality being sort of um fetishized or seen as a challenge and um. Just there's just no boundaries with with men, and it's 
as someone that's always just wanted to be unequal, it's it's very frustrating. And I I think I've suppressed a lot of it and sort of forgotten about it. But even when I was younger, you know, we used to go on MSN all the time and um, like speak to each other online and there'd be weird men from like all over the world, just like finding your email address and speaking to you. And, 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 that's, and that's dangerous. And, you know, just the un- unnecessary touching and taking your space, like, I'm feeling the need as a woman to sort of um, change the way you behave because men can't control themselves and this sort of toxic masculinity where it's seen as just the the dominant thing, it's just the norm. And um, it's just something that's always frustrated me. And I couldn't be around men that, which is a lot of men that displayed those those traits. And I just couldn't get close to to men like that because there was just there wasn't this equal equality there wasn't this respect there um and i've i've met more men now in my life who are respectful but it's they still suffer from this toxic masculinity and it's something that they have to work through and it's not it's not our problem we shouldn't have to to change ourselves to feel safe we shouldn't have to have a curfew when we're walking home we shouldn't we shouldn't feel we shouldn't feel like that and I think that's something that's made me even more of a feminist and something that, you know, we, yeah, it, it's got to change. And the Sarah Everard case is, um, has highlighted that, but it's not, the, it's not the first time it's happened and it's happened before that. And the media hasn't, re- doesn't report it. It's just seen as normalized and the, the victim blaming of women that they should act a certain way because, you know, what does that say? That men are inherently predators, you know? that's the not that it's the way society is sort of has has normalized it in a way and it's just yeah we've got a long way to go we've got a long way to go for women to feel safe for trans people to feel safe for gender diverse people to feel safe and we shouldn't be told off for expressing our anger because I think at the minute you can get um you can more they've just done a new thing where you can get 10 years for defacing a statue which is more time than you get for raping a woman and it's just like where is where is the you know the balance in that it's it's ridiculous so um yeah it's 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 a long way to go so Isabel you were saying earlier that your company has done a lot of cross-gender casting has that been successful or or has there been any pushback against that? Because I was reading an article where um, a director said that um, it was inappropriate. Women shouldn't be cast in lead male roles, especially in Shakespeare, because it, draw, it destroys the rhythm of the language. Well, we've not had... No, we've not had any pushback. People have really enjoyed it. Um, we do a lot of parody and we quite do a lot of comedy. So it's sort of tongue in cheek. But um, when I was doing my dissertation and, re- and researching for that, it was a lot about um, women playing male roles. And it is mainly Shakespeare because that is still the only place that it's really done. And that's sort of taken an, an autonomy on what Shakespeare is. And it's it's Shakespeare is supposed to be this universal language that anyone can understand. And the men played the women back in the day, you know, they didn't have anything to say about that. And it is sort of, you know, I think by women playing these roles, it brings out another aspect of, of what that character is. It makes them more three-dimensional and it's not just based on them being a man. And also the, it opens the question of what even is a man when a woman's playing it? 
And why shouldn't a woman be able to take on these roles that are great roles? And there's not many great female roles in Shakespeare. And femininity and masculinity for me aren't inherently a male or a female thing. They're aspects of our identity. And yeah, tradition, like if you're sticking to traditions, then Shakespeare's just gonna be boring and Shakespeare's been around for ages. And if you're not changing it up, then why are you doing it? Because we've already had those traditional roles done before. So, yeah. So Susie, do you think that um, transgender roles should be played by transgender actors? Yeah, sometimes it's just a yeah, man in a dress, isn't it? Yeah, yeah um, um, well, and this is it. This is this is the thing, isn't it? That if you've got, there are so many trans actors out there who are capable, extremely talented. Um, why aren't they being picked for these roles? And I think we're seeing a little bit of a shift in terms of that. You know, the the directors and and casting are starting to recognise the fact that this isn't appropriate to have. Um, you know, a cisgender person playing a trans character. Um, and I think that, you know, there are parallels as, as you go into the past around, you know, the fact that as well that, uh, you know, Isabel, you gave a nod to it as well in terms of that, you know, I'm pretty sure that if anybody's saying anything about whether Shakespeare should be played by men or not, it's probably a man that's uh, that's got that view. I would doubt very much that it was a woman speaking out against it. Um, but yeah, I mean, lived experience, the opportunity, again, you know, transgender people are a tiny percentage of the population it's it's estimated around one percent of the population are are trans but that's the same as autism which means that it's it's not that unusual and you know we should we should be showcasing all talent and it should be across the board and I think we also should be looking at other areas of intersectionality including race including disability you know faith religion um and and I think that's woefully inadequate at the moment so Cheryl, what about gendered ageism? Do you write for um, um, do you do you write roles for middle aged women? Yes, and, um, <laughs> and I think that there. Well, it's uh, you know ageism in theatre and in in the you know in society at large is really obvious. And the ideas of what you're supposed to be at certain ages, like I'm sixty, but I don't look like I'm sixty to some people, and it's in, in terms of health and, you know, what you can actually do. It's completely different than it was 60 years ago. So um, there people's ideas about what you're supposed to be like or what you're supposed to want as you get older are completely ridiculous. And again, it's um, I try to write about what people really do as opposed to what they're supposed to do. And um, what people really do is is you know, multifaceted and all over the place. Um, like I was still clubbing until I was almost 50. And, you know, and it's only, so, and if I, and in fact, when I get out of this pandemic, I'm going to start going clubbing again. Yeah. Me too. Like, we'll go just, together. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so, um, you know, there isn't, I don't think there is a thing that you're supposed to be as you get older. What does happen as you get older, I think, is that you care less and less what other people think. Mm-hmm. So I think compared to my 20-year-old self, or even my 30-year-old self, I really no longer care. And it's um, because it's, what is the point? You know, 
I'm not living for these people. They're not doing anything for me. And you, you realize like, you know, you need to use your time well. And so worrying about what somebody else thinks about what you're going to do is a complete waste of time. And, um, and I guess, and that's liberating. I'm finding it very liberating. Thank you. So let's talk about the, um, the workforce. There are very few uh, women artistic directors um, from um, NPO, uh, you know, Arts Council funded organizations. There's about 30, 31% of NPOs have uh, female um, artistic directors. And COVID has um, pushed a lot of women in, in, in the workforce who are already precariat, right? Going from work to work, not having a regular income. It's already pushed a lot into caring responsibilities. So much, many more of them are quite likely not to come back. So um, what's your experience been like in the industry, Cheryl, as, um, as, a, as a director and a producer? Well, I think, yes, there's a problem. Um, as far as, you know, uh, the representation of women, you know, at the higher echelons and, um, and having decisions made by men and, you know, having organizations controlled by men, that's, I don't, I don't even know. Well, in my own experience, um, it was as, especially as a director, I think it was a problem. And it was, it's more about when you get, when you get to the ones that got loads of money, you know, the ones that are considered the big producing theaters, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you might have a lot of male gay representation in those buildings, but not a lot of female representation of any kind and not a lot of females making the big decisions. You know, who can green light a project, you know, even though that's a film term. Who gets to decide what's going on to that onto that stage? And um, and I have to say, as a black woman, that I've sometimes been blocked by white women who are in that position. Um, that they've actually done stuff that was detrimental to my career. Um, in one in one theater, um, I did the okay, like the white guy running the theater. He hadn't really set up to have, they, they'd set up um, a position for a Black person to have, you know, as an, like an associate director level. Uh, but he didn't set that up and he was new and, um, and let me know that. And then um, at that point, I had like won a big regional award in Manchester, the Manchester Evening News Theatre Award. And, um, and he wasn't giving me anything to direct on my own. And I was like, yeah, but I won this award. And he said, oh, but I haven't seen you direct, darling. And so, um, and so I was kept not doing anything much until the end of the year. And then when I did do it, again, got nominated for awards, you know, won, you know, won one. And I, I wanted to stay at that theater for another six months just for my career. And the woman who was the head of the literary um, department, when she found out how much I was going to be paid, she sat on my application and didn't forward it to the Arts Council until I ran out of money. And, uh, and I didn't stay there. And um, that, that sounds incredible, but that's actually what happened. 
And to say that that was, you know, detrimental is to put it mildly. So it's not just men. So, so not having adequate representation leads to a blocking. It leads to the kind of uh, lack of representation we were talking about earlier. And in terms of what we see on stage is clearly being determined by who makes those decisions. Yes. Yes. And again, um, and I was told this is all, you know, when I was at that theater, I had people saying things to my face like, I don't think of you as black which uh, translates as, actually, you're good at your job. Blacks are no good. Therefore, I don't think of you as Black. Um, Or I don't see a reason to, you know, there's no need for Black theater. And, you know, they just said that to my face. And um, so it's like, again, the intersectionality is like being Black and female in a director is very hard. That's, in the end, the reason why I started um, with Darren, the reason why we started Black Gold Arts was because around 2015, it just there was a dearth of black Mancunians in black Manchester theaters. <laughs> yeah. So we weren't getting commissioned at all, or we weren't being put on. And we thought, well, if nobody else loves us, we love us. And we will promote ourselves and do, you know, and the instant we did that, it was like better for us and better for everybody else black in Manchester as well because it just raised the profile. And, um, and getting your own money, even if it's not a lot of money, means that you can go to theaters and have meaningful partnerships that, you know, and, and right now we, we platform a lot. We, we go out and find a lot of talent or we platform talent, and then that talent moves on and it moves on into the mainstream and we can't afford them anymore. But then we go find other people because there's always more talented, you know, black and brown people. Um, and, and that's, to me, that's our job, um, is to find them, platform them, move them on. Um, but in order to do that, we had to found our own organization. So both, uh, Susie and Isabel are also cultural leaders, uh, the heads of organizations. So Isabel, would you say that you're the reason to set up your own company are similar to Cheryl's or is it totally different? I think so. I, well, I think, I think it's about um, making that platform yourself. If you can't see it in, you can't see it within the industry or in society to, to yeah, to do it yourself and um, create the roles, create the community that you want to create and um, you, you be the change. If you want something to, 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 to change, then you, you be the change. And, um, as a performer, especially, like I always had a, a view of like, oh, I'll go to drama school, I'll do this, and then I'll just be a performer. But actually, that that isn't my reality. And there's a lot of, I'm an activist at heart as well, and it's about com- combining those two things. And I think the theatre industry, it's it's adapting, it's evolving, but they're still not taking chances, and they're still not being that brave when it comes to platforming different identities and representing different people and giving people a place at that table. And if they're not gonna, if they're not gonna do that, then those people should do that themselves and to, to create those platforms. But yeah, I mean, we only started a few years ago, so um, I'm only at the beginning of my journey, but um, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that, yeah. You know, it's been really moving and inspiring listening to you all. And I was wondering, um, as we come to an end, who, who's inspired you, 
you know, which writers or artists have inspired you in your lives and brought you to where you are today? Well, when I was younger, like really, really young, I think, you know, before I was 10, I can vaguely remember being in the car and hearing Nikki Giovanni read one of her poems. And it was just so beautiful. And I always remembered it. And I think that was the beginning of me thinking of writing poetry. Oh, what was the poem? Can you remember it now? It was, I don't. I, what I remember was that she was personifying herself as Africa, something like that. And it was about the jewels, you know. But my memory is a child's memory of that poem. And actually, I should go back and look it up. But I just have had, like, the, the memory of, you know, this, this woman describing herself in terms of jewels and all these other things that, um, for me, just were just fantastic. So it's, um, it is a child's memory. And I guess I've kept it that way mm. because it was a precious memory, if that makes any sense. Yeah. But I should go find, which poem was that? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Cheryl. Isabel? Oh, I had so many inspirations growing up. But I guess one of the big ones for me was Victoria Wood. Um, may she rest in peace. Um, but yeah, she she... She got rid of that sort of binary of what it was to be a comedian, to be a writer, to be a performer. Um, she she was very, very successful in a man's world. Um, she was from where I'm from. She was from Bury in, 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 in Lancashire. And um, yeah, she was just a breath of fresh air to all that sort of hyper feminine, hyper, you know, and as, and her, she's an amazing writer and she writes in the Northern dialect. And she was just a, a great tonic to what is expected of you as a woman. And she was just really funny and um, really quite bullshy about what, what she wanted and, and went for it. And, um, and Julie Walters working with her, she, she's like my acting idol, but like their, their relationship as, as a partnership and the way she supported her friends and she she got everyone involved and um yeah if it's I'd say Victoria would thank you Susie do you know <clears throat> mine's just a complete blank so I can't really <laughs> say I can't really say and actually what that what that highlights is actually how sad it is that we don't have those those you know women role models from being a child they just weren't there as far you know I didn't see that that that's not what I saw what I saw was a men a, a men controlled world a world that was perceived it was patriarchal it was all about what men wanted what men did um and so sort of like breaking out of that and going do you know something sod it I don't care what you think I'm just going to do what I think is right was even harder I think because I didn't have anybody that I could look to and go you're a kick-ass woman you know, and you are changing the world. And that's what I'm going to model myself on. There, there weren't those people there, you know. And that's because I think media and broadcast was very much controlled by men. So women weren't given that space to be powerful, to be, you know, I mean, you were, you were only respected if you were nice. You know, if you weren't nice, then you were cast as the villain. And no, no little girl wants to look and be, I'll, I'll, I'll be the witch. Though I must admit, Cruella de Vil is really cool. So Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you, Susie. I don't think I had any either, but I'm going to have you three from now on. Uh -huh. 
<laughs> so I'm going to bring it to an end. Thank you so much for your time. It was uh, I really enjoyed listening to you. It was really moving and important. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, Cheryl and Isabel, when we are allowed out of lockdown, we need to book a club night. (laughs) Oh, definitely. Let's go dancing. In Manchester. Yeah. (laughs) It's so cool. Uh, Manchester scene is amazing. Yeah. (laughs) All right. To date. I'm coming as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, okay, brilliant. Okay. No worries. Well, we've all got each other's email addresses, so as yeah. soon as soon as we're allowed, oh, we'll have to have a we'll have to have a night out. Hello, I am Millie Gaston. In this segment, I will be chatting to artists across an array of disciplines, from writers to performers, backstage, and anything in between, about their experience of working in theatre. I would love to welcome Anna Holmes, co-founder of Northern Rascals. Northern Rascals are a multidisciplinary performance company based in Yorkshire. With their unique blend of theatre and contemporary dance, the company crafts the abstract and absurd to lead the audience to narratives rooted in the current socio-political climate. They first collaborated with Northern Broadsides as part of the Digital Squad, and most recently worked with Northern Broadsides creating the aftermath at Halifax Peace Hall, which was made with a group of 20 16 to 25 year olds from Calderdale. Anna, hi, it's so great to have you on the podcast. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Hi, Millie. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I think I'm just going to kick straight off with the first question, which is what led you to create Northern Rascals and what inspires your creative practice? Um... I think creativity is such like a huge part of my identity. It's, it's always has been like I, I grew up in in the hills and like a converted barn that my dad converted. And I had a very wild childhood where they really just let me explore. They let me play, let my imagination run free. And that became so deeply ingrained in who I am that it would feel so wrong to not do that as my career. Um, and, and I'm so lucky that I've like almost had the self-belief and had the trust that I can make it happen and that yeah I I tried to never let myself go away into anything else and just stick with it um I'm really inspired by people and what makes us human and how we connect and how we separate and how we can become more emotionally literate and whole human beings that can feel every range of emotion and that's okay um so yeah my my practice is really person-led um, inspired by the incredible people that we work with. There's a lot of collaboration that goes on. I think I've learned <laughs> that I can't do everything myself. <laughs> and um, yeah, so it's always a huge, big collaborative process. So what was, the, what was the thing that kind of led you to start Northern Rascals? What was the moment that you went, I know, I'm going to kick this off? I think it was like a year after I graduated um, and I'd gone on to do like a kind of postgraduate company Um, and my experience it was my dream that company was my dream and when I got there I was like it was kind of a shock to realize that it wasn't my dream once I was within it Um, and I was like I have found myself thinking oh I think I could do that and I would do that differently and I would manage people differently and um, yeah and it just made me think like okay let's just take a second do I want to dance and perform um is that is it because I really want to do that or is it because I want people to look at me and be like wow she's amazing yeah and feel like my ego or do I actually want to do something that makes a difference um and I think yeah I think I just kind of realized that I did have something to say and that there was a place for me to say it um 
yeah, and I just started applying for some commissions. And <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, I've got one. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it just snowballed from there. Like, we've literally been so busy. And it's down to our work ethic. Like, we we don't stop, which also isn't great. But, um, yeah, like, it just hit off with that one commission. And then I just, I'm kind of like the person that just goes all in. Yeah, if you're going to do it, do it 100% and make people buy into it. And what was that commission? <laughs> yeah, so the commission was with um, the Brewery Arts Centre in Kendall in the Lake District. And it was a tiny micro commission. It was like £300 or something to make like, actually make like a 20 minute piece, I think. But it was kind of at the start when it was like me, Sam and my best friend, Steph. And we just went and created something. But I think in that first year it is like you, you do do things for free and you do do things for less because also you don't know how much you have to how much you're worth or what to pitch like we were never taught that at dance school um, never really taught to how to be the freelancer um, but from that we got all the professional footage and stuff like that that used that we used to bid for Arts Council and yeah so that was our very baby first project <laughs> fond memories do you think gender representation and lack of opportunities for women played into your decision of setting up your own company? Yeah, I mean, it's a funny one with the dance world because it's so saturated with women and with girls and you're, there's so much competition and the amount of jobs isn't proportionate to the amount of women that there is. And it's kind of that... It's kind of that thing where there's like, there might be like three quarters female in the year and a quarter male. And the standard of women dancers in there is incredible. And the standard of men is it, it is less. And, it, and it's kind of like, yeah, I've seen a lot of girls uh, that I trained with that have just been lost to self-doubt and the pressure of dance and body image and comparison, which like we're not, within our culture is so apparent anyway, but in dance school, it's so heightened, like, it's, yeah, um, and I, I've seen a lot of them just succumb to the pressure and come away from that side, part of themselves and gone into different careers because it's just not feasible. There's just not the jobs there for them. Um, so yeah, I, I, I decided, okay, if I really want to do this, if I'm going to stick with my creative part of me, which is such a huge part of me, like I'm going to have to create the opportunities for myself. Um, so I just, yeah, just kind of went and did it. And there's been a lot of self-doubt along the way, of course, like 100%. But I think there's always something inside me that does believe in myself and, and, and I trust my gut. And it's been a long journey to trust my gut. But um, yeah, there is definitely a lack of opportunities for women in dance in my industry because there's so many. Um, and I think it doesn't help with the, the culture that we live in um, that makes you shrink and makes you quiet and makes you question um, and you don't display all of your gifts um, especially choreographically wise when you come to the artistic director's roles it's like where do they go if we make up most of the industry why aren't we in those positions and are you aware of your gender and being a woman when you create work oh yeah 100% I think it, like, if we're going to go into positive spin of it um, I think being a woman has like, if I'm stereotypically in the gender roles of being a woman, I am a caregiver. Um, I am a gatekeeper to comfort and uh, to considering other people's feelings all the time. But I think that has made me a really emotionally literate person. Like I can see people and they're intense with ease. And I think that's a magic gift for storytelling. Like that's what you need, isn't it? You need to put yourself in other people's shoes and, 
I think even even not even just with creating the stories, but working with the artists in the studio, like I really I think if you ask anybody who works with me, it, they would say that the environment that I create is very safe and it's very kind and it's very supportive. And like that is a really big decision of mine to not go into that egotistical director, self-indulgent um way of working that's I've experienced so many times it's really damaging and I think only as I've got older and look back I've seen how much those people in power have damaged me and like with their comments that they've made and yeah it's a constant battle for their attention I just don't want that um and I think that's yeah I think that comes down to being caring and understanding um and creating safe spaces but I also think it's been it's super difficult to be a woman yeah in this industry and obviously like as you said before Northern Rascals is co-run with Sam uh who's a man and I'd say for the first two years like I'm like five foot three blonde like I'm small I was constantly overlooked like it was literally like we would be at like um we'd be in the theater afterwards in the networking opportunities or we'd go for interviews and like it's like excuse me where is your eyeline it's literally constantly at Sam like hello like and in those times, like I was the one doing the groundwork. I was the one doing all the application bids. Like Sam, I handle all that side of the company. And I was like, God, do you like, I'm the one who would be like writing your contract. And like, I was kind of like scoring people off in my head, like never addressed me, um, underestimated me, undermined me by like you shut that door. Um, so I think it's it's taken me a while to actually stand up for myself and not be quiet and be polite and actually say what I think. And yeah, I think it's about standing up for yourself. Um, that, 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 that's that been a test. And I also think people have preconceptions about my work with being a female. Um, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with kind of being undermined. And then like, I'm in it for the long time. Like you can see my work and feel the power and uh, the people that believe in me. And I just kind of like have a bit more of a, I'm not going to swear, attitude now. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, I've seen your work and it is absolutely fantastic. So watch out world. Oh, thank you, Millie. In the week leading up to recording this episode, we have celebrated International Women's and Mother's Day. At the same time, we've seen Meghan Markle's battles with both racism and mental health discredited as well as widespread anger at the murder of Sarah Everard and the over-policing of her vigil. What issues do you think these events have brought to life and how do you think they will impact the work we see on our stages? Yeah, that week was like, it was like a terror week, like we were calling it in the studio. Like we felt like we took such a bashing. And for me, it really took me aback, like how much it did affect me. And I actually felt really, really kind of like down and defeated throughout that week. And I'd ride the waves of being angry with Meghan Markle and then feeling so flattened by the Sarah Everard. Um, but I think, I hope it's kind of made us as women more conscious of the culture that we grow up in. And I think it's very easy to like blame and to think these problems come from the like internal, um, like, like it's us, but actually we grow up in this culture that is really wild and violent towards women and sexualized. And I think we're beginning to really see that. Um, even like feminism can feel like such a dirty word in so many people's mouths. And it's like, okay, like, let's not approach it as feminism then. Do you believe in equal rights? And people are like, yeah, yeah, of course I do. And 
oh, do you think your workplace is sexist or have you experienced any sexism like going up through high school? Like me and my friends have had so many conversations and we always thought we've had no trauma. Actually, let's break it down. We've had loads of trauma. And I think we kind of, because we repress and we go back and we go, um, we kind of dull those experiences of that trauma. Like you can't really remember it. Um, or it feels like nothing, but that's the problem, isn't it? It's so ingrained. The misogyny is so ingrained in our society. Um, I was thinking back to like, there was a, there was a, somebody that like I really loved um, and I overheard him say, we sat by the pool with a beer in his hand and I overheard him say that like feminism wasn't, doesn't exist and that equal rights aren't a problem anymore. And like my heart sunk because I was like, how can I have misjudged this person that I really respect and admire? And how can they they feel that? And how can they not see that? And I think those are the people that are very dangerous. And I think this week has really shone the light on those ugly places. And it's really devastating when the light is shone on the face of somebody that you love. Um, but I think that's so important to have those conversations, isn't it? And to keep that to 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 actually stand up and um yeah um but hopefully it will bring more of that onto our stages and hopefully women will be like oh no actually no matter how big and small my experience is it's a valid experience it's um I've got a valid point of view on this um and, and I've got something to say about it so in a recent Guardian article writer and journalist Rosita Sweetman said As well as using wit to debunk the patriarchy, the absolute bedrock of feminism, of civilization, is inclusion. One in, all in. I love the idea of using humour and community to challenge patriarchal norms. How will your creative practice sit alongside these ideas and what do you want to continue to challenge? Yeah, I think, (laughs) I don't know if my work's very comedic, but um, yeah, I think it's like continuing the conversation in whatever, in art or in the house or like giving your son the same training as your daughter. Like, like bless my dad, he's incredible and he's really tried to keep me safe. And, And now I wonder if he has said the same things to my little brother and it's like, yeah, one in, all in, like 100%. Um, And I think with my artistic work, it's about carrying on the conversation and the awareness. And we've actually been in the studio for the past month, actually at Northern Broadsides for a few weeks, um, looking at a project all about what it is to be a woman and what are the things that takes us away from our full self. Um, and and what were the was it what were the boulders that took us away? And how can we reconnect and re-engage with her again? Um, and this this was like planned way before this terror week. And that terror week was in the middle of the three weeks of research. But um, yeah, we've worked with like about nine incredible, oh my God, mind blowing women. Um, and I think a lot of the way it's so deeply ingrained is like the, the misogyny and the patriarchy, like within ills as well. Like I was thinking the other day, like, why do I hate Taylor Swift? Like, why do we have a problem? And I think this is like the Meghan Markle thing as well, isn't it? Like we... We like they like overexpose these women in the media and put them on this pedestal and they cram them down our throats with like false, false articles and false information. But you kind of like you buy it and you let it seep in. And then you kind of like not you're like kind of applaud their downfall or you don't mind when they get torn down. And like I, that's like a, a difficult, it's very complicated thing to understand in yourself, isn't it? That you have felt that. 
And I only thought when I was like, what did Taylor Swift do wrong? <laughs> nothing. Absolutely nothing, actually. And maybe I don't like her music, but I don't know anything about her. It's just because, yeah, it it's happened throughout society, hasn't it? It's throughout the ages. Women have always been put up, torn down. Um, maybe to stop us going into those positions where we do speak and we are on the pedestal. Makes you afraid of the pedestal, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, and just touching on you kind of saying how you'd been in the studio for the past four weeks and at Northern Broadsides. Big question, what is next for Northern Rascals? Ooh, well, we're kind of wrapped up in a lot of funding bids at the moment, but this this female research we've been doing, it just seems it's so important and it, it's just got to continue. I mean, it probably won't continue until further on in the year and we don't know whether it's going to be film or if it's going to be um in the in the theatres in a theatrical setting we don't know what it is and that's kind of what the beauty of this this work has been like it's been complete experimentation of who we are and what we want what we want and what we want to put on stage and what we want to see on stage um so we're not really sure where that's going to go yet but keep our keep your eyes peeled on our social media because we've got some absolutely incredible footage to show oh my god these women are so insane um but we also have our other project, Sunnyside, which we've been working on in the past two years. Um, and that really looks at mental health in young males, especially in rural areas, especially in the Pennines, in Calderdale, in West Yorkshire. So it's really close to home. And that touches on subjects of mental health, isolation, um, suicide. So we're trying to um, we're trying to create this kind of pop-up structure so we can really bring it to schools. Uh, we can create, we can bring it to um, towns we can bring it to city centers we really want to kind of like get rid of that thought that contemporary dance and the theater isn't for me because really it's just witnessing somebody express their inner thoughts and feelings and you can see that and connect and it's so for you like I hate the alienation that can come with the arts um, so that's our big big project um, so fingers crossed it will all come off <laughs> because it's got my blood sweat and tears in it <laughs> I want to finish with a quote of yours from a caption on one of your Instagram posts in celebration of International Women's Day. I wanted to take a moment to reflect on my own personal story of female growth. One that for the past year, I haven't been able to get out of my head. For the past 10 years, I've witnessed the slow yet sudden fading of my sense of self. That confident, resilient 10-year-old girl has been crushed and fit into shapes that please other people's agendas. I've been made smaller. I've been made thinner. I've been made sexier, more silent, more self-conscious. I've made sorry my mantra. About two years ago, at my most lost, struggling through the fog of another contraceptive pill, I hit a turning point. And slowly, I've been rummaging through the rubble, picking up the pieces and dusting myself off. My whole self is being fitted back together. I'm no longer afraid. I'm no longer apologizing. I'm taking my space and revealing my power. It makes me emotional listening to them. <laughs> no, it, it's, yeah. just so, it's just so true. And I just think, I wish when I see people that I know and I love who are in the situation, who are 20, 18, same situation that I was in, I just want to, I want to skip past all that crap. And yeah, but we shouldn't have to go through it, but they will go through it. And that's the, I read a quote the other day, which was like, I hurl you into the universe and pray. And I thought, I don't want to hurl my child into the universe and pray. 
I, so hopefully things yeah. begin changing. But yeah, no, it's emotional listening to that. I'm proud of myself. <laughs> You should be. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. This has been such an amazing conversation. Um, So thank you, Anna. Thank you, Millie. Thank you for having me, guys. 